Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. Hey, Jenny. How's it going? Haven't talked to you in a really long time. Oh, hey, Amanda. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it seems like we're on to our second episode. Um, this time we're going to be talking about heritage stewardship. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about heritage management and this is a critically important topic in archaeology because it widens the idea of archaeology right we're archaeologists we do archaeology but language matters if we're improving our discipline and so we are actively trying to not just move our company from an archaeological focus um, but we're also trying to move our discipline from just an archaeological focus and widen it to the idea of heritage stewardship and this would be an updating of language that recognizes that archaeology isn't just for archaeologists, it includes larger heritage. It includes larger things that are inherited. That's what heritage is. And the stewardship piece means that we are not the owners of this heritage. And historically in archaeology, archaeologists have been, you know, given the golden ticket to manage and own and access and control heritage that was never theirs. And instead, we're considering the possibility that we change the language to be more of stewardship. We're caring for something that belongs to other people that they are still in charge of, but that we are privileged and honored to honor to hold for them. Um, and they can direct what happens to it, where it goes, how it's used, and so on. So that's kind of that movement that is happening within archaeology as we update our language to recognize not just the limitations in archaeology, but the potential of archaeology as well. So can you explain for the listeners, Jenny, um, what is an archaeological site versus a heritage site? Those can be um, sites, it can be physical things like archaeological sites, but it can also be traditions and languages and ways of knowing and ways of living as part of an overall heritage fabric that is passed on from one person to another person or one family to another family. So it includes cultural traditions and customs. Yep, as well as languages, ways of eating, ways of being in a landscape, things like that. So what is the responsibility of an archaeologist in a, in a consulting archaeology company when it comes to heritage stewardship? Well, I, I think that this is part of the challenge is that not all archaeologists feel a responsibility to heritage stewardship. I think that as archaeologists, we're trained to have this conservation ethic that came out in the 70s, which is about preserving sites and preserving material, which is super important. Uh, I think we all benefit from a preserved archaeological record, but that shouldn't be the primary goal, in our opinion, of why we have um, archaeology. 
but that's that's the way archaeology kind of developed in the 70s was all of this development was going on and all of these archaeological sites were being destroyed. And so we get this rise of heritage legislation, not just in BC where we are, but also in areas of the states, other parts around the world as this hyper development is taking off. Uh, in our case, BC was primarily with forestry was destroying a lot of sites. And there became this concern that all of this potential knowledge, the scientific knowledge was being lost. And we were never going to be able to get it back again. So there was this uh, th there was this responsibility to the archaeological record, and that has really persisted, you know, for forty years. But I think that there's a much larger responsibility. Um, which is to not just the archaeological record, but to providing space for descendant communities of that archaeological record to be able to direct how those archaeological materials are preserved, to what end, what's being asked of them. Um, and that brings in um, a bit more of a sensitive approach because if we're only if we're if we're putting primacy on the archaeological record, this conservation ethic, we're not necessarily looking at the dangers or the risks of um, destroying this material. We're not looking at the dangers and risks to the descendants' communities, that, it, that it's a literal break from a physical connection with their heritage. But essentially, like what archaeologists have been doing for, for the last 50 or so years has been preserving materials, putting them in a museum, and placing those materials into a bunch of storage boxes or drawers which are essentially um not not very accessible then to the descendant communities to be able to even touch or feel them or or learn from them right so like do, what do you feel that archaeologists and, and companies should have in terms of responsibility like where do, where's their hierarchy of responsibilities I guess there's leg legislative responsibility, and then there's also a, an ethical responsibility. You could choose to go above and beyond what the legislative requirements are. And that would be working with the descendant communities from start to finish on a project to make sure that it's, it's taking in all the aspects of, of um, conservation and learning about a site right from start to finish for for a particular community getting them involved right and i think that um that lack of involvement this disenfranchisement that's happened with indigenous communities in canada not just with not just with respect to archaeological materials, but it's been part of this colonization process as well. And so creating this separation from a community from their cultural record, their archaeological record, it's been a very deliberate, um, it's been a very deliberate program. It's been a very deliberate action to disenfranchise communities from that past. And it disrupts these, these cultural pathways as well which makes it very easy for developments to just go ahead. Right, because if you're not acknowledging that there's a descendant community that's still, that's still alive and has a claim to that material, then they don't need to be involved in what happens to that material and what happens to that land. So why do you think our discipline is changing and moving towards this heritage stewardship approach? Why hasn't it always been there from the beginning? 
Well, I think that um, the blinkers are coming off. Like people have known about, I, I think people have known the way that we do archaeology is wrong for a really long time. I don't think this is something that people have just woken up to. I think that, you know, for us, and for me, I, when I started in archaeology, something about it just didn't feel right. We were bringing First Nations rep representatives out almost as tokenism. Like I wasn't doing that personally in that, oh, you know, I'm going to check this box. But the whole program was part of that. It was part of checking a box if the First Nations uh, were even invited to come out. And so I think, um, you know, it's gone from from tokenism but i think that it wasn't the approach from the beginning because it was seen as too hard it was seen as a new way of doing it and it was also seen as giving up power you know archaeologists we get to control the narrative about history we get to tell the story about the artifacts that we take out of the ground and that while it might be fun and exciting to us it can be potentially um, damaging or empowering to descendant communities. If it's making a claim to land, if it's showing a case for title and rights. And as when we have those kind of high stakes situations, people don't want to make that connection because then it means then um, for, well, I'll give you an example. So working here in Bowser, uh, we have a really large archeological site located, you know, three kilometers from where I'm sitting right now. And I frequently, to this day, get phone calls from landowners who want to do some development on their property within the boundaries of this archaeological site. And I explained mm -hmm. to them, they're within the boundaries of this archaeological site, they're going to need permits and so on. And frequently, more than you would ever imagine, they ask if the First Nations are going to come and take their land. Mm. there's a site there and so there's this feeling of loss that if there's this acknowledgement of archaeological material that it's there that there's going to be a giving over of power and tenure and people are going to lose access to land and rights which ironically is what has been done to the indigenous communities <laughs> through that yeah. very very same way um, and when I spoke to um, Chief Michael Rakama, the chief of the Qualicum First Nations about this he was laughing uh, because he gets this all the time and and he was saying we don't want we don't want the land <laughs> like that's not that's not what's happening we have no interest in it um and so I, it, a lot of it can be about acknowledgement of that connection uh that is what has been is what has been missing and by by calling something heritage stewardship instead of heritage management for example it's acknowledging that it's not ours to control that we're just caring for it and i think that that is a big difference and and talking about it that way can be very powerful and very uh, positive for indigenous communities to hear that change in how archaeologists are are speaking about their heritage as a company we've always um seen this as one of our values and one of our strengths is that we um, try really hard to ensure that we're managing the heritage record in a way that is respectful of the Indigenous people whose lands we work on. Yeah, so can you can you give us an example of how this has been applied at work? Um, like I'm thinking of the Manette Bay project. Yeah, can you talk about that? Be a good example. Um, well, with uh, the Manette Bay project, we ended up finding some fish weirs, which are uh, wooden stakes that had been pounded into the ground thousands of years ago. 
in Heisler territory and we were out on a development project. And so it had budgets and timelines, but we worked very closely with the Heisla on determining how that site would be managed. And um, there were portions of the site, like percentages of the site that had to be, where the physical artifacts had to be removed and then taken from the site for preservation. And eventually those materials, once they're fully preserved, they can be placed in a museum. This was all done in close conjunction with Heisla and decisions were made at the elders table. So um, every aspect of it was decisions that were made by the descendant community. And it has very close knit ties to rights and title because the Heisla, and they said this in, in the video that we that uh, they produced, that they always knew that their physical presence was there, but just by finding these fish weirs, they now had that proof. And that proof will be um, like physical artifacts that they'll be able to show to future generations down the road to learn about the site. And I think there's a, there's a lot more there that we could still learn from that site, but I think that um, it was just a good experience in working really closely with an Indigenous community to, to work through the process of managing that site. How do you think that project would have gone if it was, you know, 10 years ago, for example, or a different a different company, not that all companies are different than us, they're not. There's some really excellent companies working in BC, but there's also some really not excellent companies working in BC. So let's assume it was a not excellent company that was just following um, the heritage legislation. How do you think that project might've gone differently? That's a good question. I don't know if the site would have even ever been taken seriously because there were times when, um, there was pressures on the, I'm gonna say the client side to, um, like they, they didn't want the site to be significant and it would have been more convenient if it wasn't, but we persevered and, and the Heisler persevered in getting dates from the site. And that might not have happened 10 years ago. Uh, I think there were a lot of folks that would have preferred that to be just considered a heritage site, not an archeological site, because it was wooden materials that it, it's just hard to fathom that they were preserved for thousands of years. Right, and this is part of the problem um, that archeologists um, find themselves in is that we have this approach where we're trying to improve our discipline, but it's not necessarily supported by the legislation. So we don't always have a lot of things that we can point to when we have a client who pushes back and says, well, the legislation says I just need to do A, B, and C, and you're telling me I need to do D, E, and F, but it's not, yeah. but why do I need to do that? And so this is part of the challenge that we're having um, with clients. And I kind of think of us as this, you know, three-legged stool where one leg is us, one leg is the client and, and one, oh, I guess it's a four-legged stool. One leg is us, one leg's the client, one leg is the archeological regulator, the province in this case, and one, one leg is the First Nations community. And I feel like we are often doing the balancing 
between those groups. Not that there's not other balancing going on. I'm sure that there is, but in terms of a project specific on the ground balancing, I feel that we're doing that as we're trying to hear from the community what it is that they want to happen and then communicate that to the client when the regulator is telling them that they don't necessarily have to do all of those things. And we're saying, well, you should be doing these things and it's it's going to cost a bit more money. It's going to cost a little bit more time for the project, but it's the right thing to do. It, it's very hard to promote something simply because it's the right thing to do. Almost impossible, but we do it regularly. And yet it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what we have, have been able to do, and, and <laughs> this is actually a great example, is, is sometimes we have clients that we can't work with because they will not recognize that there's just some things that are just the wrong way to do things. And uh, Amanda, I wonder if you could give an example of the project out in Prince Rupert where we actually had to fire the client and why. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was an interesting one that came up. Uh, I think it was just before COVID and I had a, an email and a phone call from a desperate client who was going to be doing some geotechnical drilling in a particular area. They were installing some fiber optic cable and it was just a, a box he needed to check to have an archeological person out there on site monitoring. And I spent a few hours with this client, maybe even a couple of days trying to educate them on the process. And he clearly wasn't from the area. And I'm not sure where he's used to doing archaeology, but it's not, it's not in Prince Rupert and it's not in BC. And so I explained to him that we could certainly help him out and that I would give him a cost estimate for the work. And in the cost estimate, I included some time in there for talking with the First Nations. And in this particular region, there is an overlap of, of six First Nations that have claimed this area. And I included in their field time for six of those field representatives from each one from each nation. And I gave this, gave this estimate to him with the breakdown. And he immediately, um, the next day, called me in a panic um, because his shareholders or the, the people above him had a meeting and there was no way, um, no way in hell that they were going to pay this. And that if the First Nations wanted to be on site, that was fine, but they weren't going to pay them for their time, that they would have to volunteer. <laughs> and so again, I tried to explain to him that's not how it's done. That's an insult to them that you're not even agreeing to allow them to participate in this process. And uh, yeah, Jenny and I talked about it and uh, we just politely um, emailed him and told him we went against our, our company values and ethics and that we couldn't, couldn't work with him on that project. Um, best of luck. And probably what ended up happening is, well, I don't know, but I speculate that they probably just went ahead and did their drilling and didn't have anyone on site. So. And that's the problem when we don't have legislation that recognizes um, 
uh, First Nations as being beyond stakeholders. Like we hear about stakeholder communication and First Nations aren't stakeholders. Uh, they are the community. They are the ultimate audience as well. I'm a stakeholder, right? Um, my connection doesn't run as deep as First Nations. And so the legislation, whether it means to or not, it, it's, it's perpetuating this enfranchisement that has happened. Um, by not assure, by not ensuring that First Nations, you know, are sitting at the head of the table where these discussions are being made, and also this idea of, you know, it's okay for you and me to monetize heritage, but it's mm -hmm. not okay for nations to monetize heritage and be paid for their time if that's what they choose to do is absolutely bonkers to me. Yeah, yeah, that was um, a first. I've I've never had a client approach a project that way before mm -hmm. so I think we handled it appropriately and also we let the nations know um because I had been communicating with them this guy had a really tight timeline he wanted us out there like next week and so typically when we work with the first nations communities we like to give them as much of a heads up that there's some field work happening and there's a project happening and so I had been communicating and I had to close the loop on that communication. So I uh, somehow worded it in a way that was um, <clears throat> polite <laughs> to the client that just we, we could, couldn't work with them. Yeah, and this is one of these additional uh, complications when we have heritage legislation that props up management of the heritage and ultimately removal of the heritage but doesn't hold up stewardship and care of the heritage, we find ourselves doing workarounds and being in really tight, uncomfortable spots where we're trying to bridge those shortfalls that are happening between what's right, what needs to be done because it's right versus what needs to be done because it's legislated. And something else that we've been trying to do as well is, is creating innovative programs so that First Nations can have more hands-on uh, hands experience and access to their own heritage, which also sounds bonkers. Like, why should we be facilitating this access? It's their heritage, it's their cultural material. But because of the way our framework is set up, we're like the gatekeepers to this material, which we ought not to be. We shouldn't be the only ones with the key to this material at all. And so I'm thinking of the internship programs, for example, that we have, that we have set up uh, for First Nations community members so that they're getting training with their own material. And somehow we've managed in some budgets with clients to embed these internship programs that are specifically to build capacity at the community level for Indigenous communities so that the client is ultimately paying not just for the First Nations participation, but for the First Nations capacity building so that they are being taught the skills so that they can go forward and do more of their own own heritage programming, their own heritage stewardship as well. Yeah, it adds so much more value to the project and, and long lasting memories for the people who participate in it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately a better relationship for the client with those First Nations communities that, that'll go a long way. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like we see the future of heritage in BC and ultimately in other places where appropriate to be indigenous owned and managed firms. 
managing their own heritage, being stewards of their own heritage at a local level. And one of the blocks to that that's happening right now in BC and in other places is that idea of who is allowed to manage heritage. And the way it's set up in our neck of the woods is that you have to have many years of university, many years of on-the-job training in order to be allowed to be a permit holder and direct projects and so on. But we firmly believe that the future isn't going to look like that. And we're, we're, we're actively trying to support that by having these internship programs where we're downloading information to community members who can then take that to meet their own interests and goals instead of our interests and goals. And it's also why we are actively developing our educational arm so that we can download this information that we have in our head from years of experience and download it to indigenous archeologists who are already working in their territories or want to be working in their territories, but want to have additional skills to the ones that they've learned from being on the land and growing up in the culture. Yeah, and stay tuned because I think we have another episode where we're planning on talking about that topic entirely. Well, I think that this way of doing archaeology for good, as as we've coined it, has been something that has evolved uh, for me from like early on in my career up until um, like embarking on these major projects with Jenny and, and with Clienza, it just kind of, it just naturally flowed in that direction because I had worked for a few other companies beforehand and, and, and Jenny had it as well, where we saw examples of how it was maybe archeology span for bad mm. um, or the standard. So there was bad archeology span being done, but there was also a lot of just the standard what we call cookie cutter approach which is following the legislative requirements and what I saw um, this was back before a lot of indigenous communities had access to internet they were given communications about an archaeological project over the fax machine and it was typical of an archaeologist to just fax a nation a map of their proposed project and um, they, they might request field participants as what Jenny called tokenism, um, not really understanding like, why are we doing this? And we're just doing it because it's a requirement. But there was a lack of real meaningful communication that happened prior to a project getting started and And through the duration of the project, there was very little communication. Oftentimes, it would just be that initial fax and then maybe taking some field assistance out and and then providing them with a report with the results. And it just didn't feel right. It didn't sit right with me. And I I started... um, doing my work by adding additional communication. And as soon as I did that, I got really good feedback from the nations I was working with. And just like going to the community and meeting with them was unheard of. And the energy that I received, like positive feedback from the nations I was working with, just because I took that little extra time to go and meet with them and talk about the project and put maps out on the table so we could identify 
what their archaeological concerns were or their heritage concerns. It might be traditional use sites that we weren't aware of. And then we had that little bit of extra leg up knowledge and information about the land. Um, when we did go out in the field, we were able to, to take that information and investigate a little bit harder into like what, what are we looking for here? And not just doing the standard um, shovel tests and, and write a report. And I think it just kind of, as I was doing it and I was getting positive feedback, I, I started to feel better about the work that I was doing and just made sense that that's how you should be doing archeology span and then take it even a step further so that it's not just like Jenny said, archeologists managing the project, but allowing the First Nations community to, to take over the stewardship of that project and let them direct how it's done and work together. And, and acknowledging also that the same system that has given us the privilege of being in a position to make these decisions is the same system that has rendered it acceptable to just send a fax to an empty office. Um, and so it was also about acknowledging that that system was broken and that not only did we have a responsibility to, to, um, to bring First Nations to the table that we already had seats at, but by doing almost nothing, we had, you know, somehow earned these seats at this table, but also helping to build the capacity. So for example, what would happen with archaeology in BC is we would, um, there's a lot of air quotes going on, which I, I get is very effective for a podcast audience, <laughs> but we would have to we would, we would be obliged to cons consult. We talk about consultation. We would be obliged to consult with First Nations whom had been identified the, by the province as having a, claim, a territorial claim to the area where the project was in. But what that meant was to consult with a nation was simply sending that fax. And nine times out of 10, that fax would go to an office that was understaffed in communities that didn't necessarily have Wi-Fi didn't have enough folks trained to work in the office, were experiencing socioeconomic problems related to colonization um, and larger issues of residential schools and intergenerational trauma. And we weren't acknowledging that we were part of the system as archeologists, we weren't acknowledging that we were part of the system that had, had facilitated that entire thing, which is why, it, it, you know, as we widen what consultation means and, and post the Chilcotin de decision that there's now a duty to obtain consent, we can't just be like, okay, well, now we're getting consent. We actually, there's a, another side of that, which isn't mandated, right? So consent now is mandated, but the other side of it that is not yet mandated is a commitment to building up the capacity so that these nations have the ability to provide um, free prior and informed consent. And that's helping with the training and redirecting funds from heritage work back into those communities as well. And so it's not just good enough that folks then go and say, well, aren't we fantastic because we got consent or we're seeking mm -hmm. consent or we're consulting. It's like, well, you also have to acknowledge the system that this happened within and try to help that as well. Yeah, we were noticing like time and time again, it just kept repeating itself that 
the communities we were meeting with would tell us that they have these referrals and it was like stacks and stacks of paperwork that was coming through. Oh, you'll have to stacks. explain what a referral is though. Yeah, it's stacks and stacks of paperwork that was piling up on people's desks that were um, these communications about projects that were happening. Some were archeological, some were environmental or forestry, or they're just referrals about a development project. So these were coming through from the province and people were feeling overwhelmed with all of this paperwork. They didn't quite understand the jargon that was in it. What does it mean? And when it came to the archeological referrals specifically, we, we could see that there was a need there to help. And when Jenny talks about capacity building, it's, it's helping them to build capacity in their own positions of work where it's their job to open and review these referrals and provide feedback on them. And they're, they're required to provide feedback within a very limited amount of time, usually only giving them 30 calendar days to, to respond to these. And so in, in many cases, they just weren't being looked at because they didn't have the capacity or the understanding of what they meant. And then while all this is going on and companies are saying that they are improving their practice by seeking consent uh, and doing consultation and we have our First Nations consultation team and everything, we would then that very same day be going out on these projects, doing our tailgate meeting. And I would be looking around at my crew, making sure, does everyone have water? Does everyone have um, a radio? And there's, there's community members who are like showing up in flip-flops because no one could even bother to give consultation of what to show up with and work with safely. And I would say, well, you know, I, 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 got, I got boots through this project, for example, like sometimes there's um, uh, equipment allowances on projects and, and they, and community members were saying, we, yeah, we never got safe work boots. And I'm saying, why, why, weren't, why weren't all members of the team given safe work boots? And there was this absolute tangible line where there was a bunch of largely white archaeologists wearing nice work boots mm -hmm. and a bunch of community members who no one could even provide the capacity to work safely. And we were just hitting the brakes on those projects in a major way and saying, this is bullshit. Like this will, this will make, continue to be tokenism as long as there's no level playing field. People aren't being given the option to do a good job. They're not even being given the opportunity to do a great job, um, which they would do. Of course they would do that if they got even a drop of the same funding and attention that we got as, as the archeologists. It, it's just been shocking. There's so many stories of this yeah. happening, happening like day to day. And so um, we tell our staff, like this idea of doing archaeology for good, to decolonize our discipline isn't about one big decision. It's not about one big uh, mission statement that we ro roll out. It's about a thousand little decisions that we make every single day about advocating for doing the right thing. Does everyone have the right boots? Did we talk to everyone? Did we go out to the community and introduce ourselves and say, hi, my name's Jenny. Hi, my name's Amanda. And, and just, you know, have a conversation. And it's, it's all those, those decision points that actually 
make it possible to do archaeology for good because if you're not putting the time into all those decision points and instead you know expect to go out and do capital c consultation with like one big action it's not going to it's not going to happen even with transportation we would say we're working on a project meet us in prince george at this this location and not realize that, that these people coming to like eagerly wanting this job have no way of getting there and we found like a couple of our first nations reps hitchhiking to get to the project area and it's just something that we, we wouldn't even have thought of but not everyone has a car no and and gas. not everywhere is on a bus route or and not everyone has the money for a bus ticket like what a privileged position um, we're in to just, you know, be part of uh, a framework that makes those assumptions. It's a pretty complicated topic and pretty heavy stuff, but I think that doing archaeology for good is is the way to move forward, and it's what we want to see our entire discipline of archaeology and heritage moving in that direction, and I and I think it is moving in that direction. It's changing. I think so too. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of these principles can be taken outside of archaeology, right? Like just as Canadians, as good humans, we, we do want to do better. And I think that in Canada, what we have is um, right now, there's a lot of truth being spoken about um, our colonial past and, yeah. you know, the realities of how industry has worked and how resource extraction has worked and who controls land and to what end and in spite of whom. And I think that we're, we're speaking, you know, in order to have reconciliation, we talk about this idea in Canada of truth and reconciliation. You cannot have the reconciliation. You cannot move forward. You cannot make things better until you have the truth part. And so a lot of what we want to do with this podcast is related to that truth part. We want to have a lot of frank discussions about what's not working in our discipline because we can't we can't kind of keep sweeping it under the rug. People want to talk about this stuff, but we don't have a lot of guidelines. We're 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 riding the train as we're building the track. And so we're trying to create a framework where archaeologists and people who care about archaeology who aren't archaeologists but for whatever reason maybe it intersects with their discipline or they just like heritage or they're a forester or they live near a cool heritage site for example there has to be a truth spoken about the history of how that discipline how our discipline has developed and on the backs of whom and that's the only way we're going to be able to move past it. And as we move past it, then we can start to have those meaningful conversations about what has been lost when only a few people were, were given the key for accessing heritage, when only a few people were given the job of being able to tell stories about the past and then what has been lost because of that. And it's not too late to change it. We're, we're widening it right now and we're coming to terms. And, and the really amazing thing is the communities that we are studying in the past, they're still here. And that's not the case in every country in the world. And so we actually have people that we can go to and ask, how do you want this done? Is the, do you like this? What's the problem with this? You know, what is this artifact? Um, and that's, that's not the case. And why on earth wouldn't we want that richness to our shared history in Canada, our shared heritage, instead of continuing to believe that there was some sort of big break 
between the folks who are here now and the folks who were studying pre-1846 in BC. Um, and I think as we come to terms with that and talk about it, then we can improve the practice by recognizing what's fucked up about it. And we're planning on having some, like an excellent lineup of guests on the podcast coming mm -hmm. up. So um, we're going to continue to talk about this and get other perspectives other than just Amanda and Jenny. Right. Because um, that's part of it too, is decentering our own voices as archaeologists, right? So yeah. We're starting the conversation, but we want to quickly provide a space for other folks who maybe aren't archaeologists in the traditional um, sense, uh, in a, like a professional uh, archaeology sense, and give them the floor uh, and find out what it means to them. Well, everything that we do at Clienza is based on our ethics, and we we think very carefully about every approach that we take towards the work that we do. And we try to base it on our practice of heart-based values and really um, doing what we think is good. And what feels good. And doing, yeah, what, what we think is right. And we kind of just like, not, not only our heart, but our guts kind of lead us in, in a certain direction. And it's always for a purpose. Sometimes we make mistakes. We're not, we're not perfect, but we always learn from those mistakes and we carry that forward into the work that we do. In addition to having the descendant communities that we can look to for guidance, we do also have some guiding principles such as the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action. And those are both uh, a series of principles that, that advocate for a stewardship approach as opposed to an ownership or management approach of heritage. We're just scratching the surface with these really big topics. And one of the mandates of this podcast was create this venue for folks to, to talk about these topics that I'm sure you know, they're grappling with as well. We're grappling with them. What does it, what does it mean to control the past? And uh, what do people care about the past for in Canada anyway? And so we're just starting to scratch the surface on these topics. And, and we really do want to get other folks' perspectives on what these, what these things mean for them. Where are their struggle points you know, from other archaeologists? How are they coming into this new and bright future where we're widening who does uh, heritage work and why? Thanks so much for listening to us. Thanks, Amanda. It was nice to chat with you about these things. We're really excited for the next episode. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode. <laughs>